Hello and welcome to the Fit to Transform podcast, where you learn how to train and diet effectively and, most importantly, how to maintain those results for life, once and for all. I'm Nikias Tomasiello, a transgender training and nutrition coach working online with anyone who's ready for a true lifestyle transformation anywhere they may be in the world. As a friendly reminder, any and all information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult with your doctor before implementing any changes to your diet and exercise program. With that disclaimer out of the way, thank you for being here. Now grab yourself a cup of tea or pre-workouts and enjoy. Yo, welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Eric Helms back on the show for another interview. And I don't think Eric needs any introduction. In fact, I believe that the majority of you, if not absolutely everyone, will be delighted to know that this is only part one of our two-part conversation. In this particular episode, we are going to discuss a recent scientific paper where Eric was one of the primary authors, and this is titled Effect of Small and Large Energy Surpluses on Strength, Muscle, and Skin Followed Thickness. And you get Eric again in the next episode as well. How cool is that? So thank you for tuning in as always, and let's get straight to the conversation. Dear listeners, hello and welcome back to the podcast. Today I have Dr. Eric Helms back with me. Eric, you were my first guest and it's great to have you on again. That's a huge privilege and a pleasure to be the first guest and to be back on. It means I didn't uh, ruin the podcast, so that sounds pretty good. I will have you know that your podcast was the most listened to for a long time until Dr. Bill Campbell happened. So yeah. you've, got, you've got to try hard this time to gain the crown back. Oh, man. You, you, you can't compete with Bill. And you don't want to. He's just too damn nice. So, uh, so you know what? I'm happy to be second fiddle. We'll see how this goes, though. I have a good feeling about this conversation. Me too. In episode number eight, dear listeners, Eric and I talked about the basics of hypertrophy. And today I wanted to have him on again because there has been there has been quite a lot of research published on hypertrophy actually um, in the last couple of years and the first piece of research that I wanted to ask you about Eric is actually your most recent if I'm not wrong preprint study which is titled effects of small and large energy surpluses on strength muscle and skin fold thickness so the first topic is going to be gaining phases. And my first question for you is, before we even get to the actual paper, what were your thoughts on what an adequate surplus would be in a gaining phase before this study? Yeah, one of the motivating factors to actually do this study back when, believe it or not, we started planning it in 2018. Yeah, took a while to get this one through, thanks to COVID, um, was that there's not a ton of research on this, and the research we have is to some degree limited. We had some studies where you had a relatively aggressive approach uh, in relative novices. You had some studies um, in athletes, um, but they were also still performing their sport training. Uh, there's some there's some line of research by Ina Garth. Um, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that as an American. Garth. It's probably like Garta, but uh, you know I'm gonna keep saying Garth. 
And, um, you know, there's some other work as well. Dr. Tinsley had an analysis out of their lab a few years ago. But when you kind of cobble it all together, it, there wasn't a clear unifying message. Um, the study that I felt was probably the one to kind of hang your hat on the most was the research by Gartha. And it seemed to indicate that the disproportionate benefit you get from increasing calories to try to gain muscle mass faster was not really worth it. So um, just as kind of a brief summary of that, they brought in dietitians and they had this mixed group of athletes essentially take their normal sport training and just slap an upper lower four day split on top of it. So upper lower, upper lower, kind of almost like your traditional like standard bodybuilding program, um, you know, compound lifts, moderate rep range, et cetera. And then they brought in dietitians and said, hey, let's get you into a, you know, a quantified surplus and I'll help you do that. And then the group that was the other group was kind of told, hey, you know, put on some muscle, follow the same training program, but do this in a more self-guided fashion. And what that resulted in were these individualized approaches to gaining weight at different rates um, and that were set to, you know, individual targets. So it's a very translational study. And on average, the group that was led by dietitians were eating 600 calories more than the group that was doing it on their own. And you kind of saw the difference between like a 0.2% of body weight gain per week versus something like three times that. Um, and when you look at just the raw mean changes, uh, you are seeing larger increases in muscle mass or lean body mass, I should say, because um, it was DEXA in the group that was led by the dietitians, but it wasn't that close to significant. And the main significant change was substantially more fat mass gained in the group that was eating the 600 calories more to the tune of like a five-fold difference. Um, and when we know about how there's an obligatory increase in lean body mass when you gain fat, there's been some good methodological work actually by Tinsley and colleagues and others um, that's basically there's a small component of, of, of fat tissue that does have lean mass. So there are changes in lean mass, even if you lose or gain pure body fat when measured in DEXA. Um, I'm less confident that there was actually a meaningful or real difference. Strength performance was also not, not significantly better in the group that gained more. The only performance difference is, if I recall correctly, I think their, their sprint time went down because basically they weighed more, you know. So uh, <laughs> they had a little bit of chonk off the starting blocks is basically the, uh, the interpretation there. Um, and so, yeah, you basically see this, this disproportionate, like I mentioned, outcome where the additional surplus didn't seem to help them. Um, mm -hmm. So as these being trained athletes, they've, they've got some S&C background, probably the closest group that we had to kind of the two approaches and a little more directly assessing the experimental design. Mm -hmm. um, that, that was kind of where I was hanging my hat and I was expecting like, you know, we need more research on this. I'd like to see it in groups that are just here not to, to enhance their performance in sport with S and C, but just trying to do a weight gaining uh, for the purposes of muscle mass and strength gain. So I was going into it expecting that the higher surpluses would not prove beneficial, but would increase fat mass more. That was the hypothesis I had working going into it, but mm -hmm. that we might see some indication that there was also some uh, benefit for higher surpluses for muscle gain, but that it wouldn't really be worth it was kind of the calculus that I had in my head. Mm, that makes sense. And then, so you said that this previous study that you were hanging your hat on by 
Garth or Garthe or I have no idea. I am Italian, so between the two of us, uh, <laughs> I don't think we can figure out the pronunciation. But anyway, uh, this study um, had participants who were probably the closest possible to the kind of um, participant that we would like to see in a study. So a more somebody who's more interested in bodybuilding type specific training or hypertrophy specific training. So in your study instead, in the method section, I was reading that you had 21 trained lifters. And I was wondering, what do you mean by trained? Good question. So yeah, we typically use uh, two different aspects to delineate someone as quote unquote trained. Uh, we have a strength standard, um, and then we also have an, a uh, time spent in the gym standard. And we find when we use those together, we really make sure that we don't have someone who's been kind of working out for a while, but, but maybe not using progressive overload. Um, and we also ensure that we don't just have someone who's freakishly strong, but's actually been in the gym long enough. Mm. So it's not a perfect system to have those two overlapping criteria, um, but it does help. It does limit your sample size. So there's pros and cons if you think about it from like a researcher's perspective. Um, so yeah, we, we required them to have at least one year of training experience and then to be able to uh, squat 1.5 times body weight for the uh, male participants uh, and uh, bench body weight. And then those were just shifted down 0.25 as a scalar uh, aspect of body weight for uh, the, the, the female participants we had. So that is something that um allows us to ensure that it's decently translational to the populations who we're trying to uh, extrapolate it to um and so yeah that that i think that's 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 good to step in the right direction um you can absolutely institute higher strength standards or more experience but what ends up happening is you just have to wait longer until you get people in the study um mm -hmm. Another downside to the way we did it is that you can get people like I would qualify for the study, you know, um, but then so and someone who's literally just been lifting a year and has made solid uh, progress. Should we be compared, you know, especially with a small sample size, if I get randomized into, you know, one group and they get randomized into another, um, is it really the effect of the group assignment or is it the or is it heavily confounded by uh, the fact that I might not be able to gain muscle at, let's say that 15% surplus group. And they would have actually benefited from going there because they've still got, you know, they're only 60% towards their, let's say, theoretical maximum muscle potential. I'm 95% there. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just guessing, right? But I think you can see how there are concessions that have to be made when you're, when you're making studies like this, unfortunately. But, you know, we get a little closer and we keep chipping away at it. That's kind of the perspective we have. Yeah, each study, the way I see it, is a piece of a much larger puzzle. Mm -hmm, 100%. That's a great perspective. And so you had these trained lifters, and trained is exactly what you defined just now. And my understanding is that they were divided into three different groups. One mm -hmm. trained at maintenance energy, uh, one in a 5% in um, surplus, and one in a 15% surplus and they were all training three days per week for eight weeks is that correct exactly yeah we had uh there was basically a maintenance phase so kind of an initial yes. they expressed their interests to kind of give a peek behind the curtain you know we would advertise the study someone would say hey i'd love to be in your study we go fantastic 
uh, we put them in touch with um, our uh, Dr. Alyssa Joy Spence, and she would ensure that they could actually they'd meet up, talk through things, verbally get the idea. Do they do they fit into the study uh, criteria? Um, and then we'd also just kind of do a familiarization session on squat and bench press, which were included on each day, just to make sure they could reach the standards. Can they squat to depth, you know, safely and comfortably? Is that something they've done? Um, they did have to be squatting and benching in their regular training. Um, just so that we didn't see familiarization effects really kind of amplifying their strength or, you know, have a, a suppressed pre, uh, pre-test 1RM and then they get really, really good at squatting and benching rather than it being representative, quote unquote, more stable strength gains. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, if they were able to, okay, we know they can do the training and they're an appropriate participant for the study, they would go into a maintenance phase. Um, and then mo- for most of the study, that was uh, Steve Taylor. Uh, he was the dietitian who helped us, also the Team 3MJ dietitian, and he basically acted as each one of the participants' coaches, and he helped them get within a, uh, a stable body weight range, where for a couple of weeks they were only plus or plus or minus one percent of their body mass. So we got them to maintenance, and then they would be randomly assigned to either a maintenance group, a five percent surplus, or a fifteen percent surplus, which we had objective definitions for their average body weight change uh, occurring on a on a weekly basis. And, um, yeah, one thing I, I may be jumping ahead to a question you're going to ask, but the, the process of doing that is not necessarily clean, you know, asking someone to be in a 5% surplus, it's, it's small, you know? So, I mean, if you think about it, if you have a maintenance energy intake of 3000 calories, you know, that's only 150 calorie surplus, right? So the type of body weight gain you can see is going to be easily eclipsed by, Uh, like water weight changes and just the typical fluctuations we all see on a day-to-day basis. Um, And the maintenance group, you know, that plus or minus factor is, you know, it, it, that, that is also potentially like, oh, you could be in a surplus of one week. Oh, and then we're going to bring you back into like a deficit or, you know, whatever. So it is not by any means necessarily a really, really clean distinction between these groups. And when you look at the table in the preprint, you can see between the two surplus groups, they actually had the same mean change in body weight. So that right there goes to show you that even when you've got a coach working with you, you know, an experienced dietitian, he's been doing this for years, objective criteria, you screen people, you take them through a maintenance phase, you teach them how to track, and you're doing regular check-ins, um, it's not necessarily going to be the cleanest thing in the world. So, um, and when you have a small sample size, like, like we did, which because we were we got basically blown up multiple times by, by COVID lockdowns. You know, we got a couple of people hanging in the maintenance phase, one or two people training, and then uh, we lose all four of them. Right. Um, that happened three times. So, wow. Yeah. Our initial plan was to cr- recruit in the high number of thirties of people. So that with attrition, we had, you know, roughly 10 per group. Um, and what we ended up with was we recruited 21 and then the final number in the analysis was 17. So we're talking slightly more than half the participants we thought we would have. So we're comparing groups of five or six. So you get, you know, one person like that example I gave earlier of myself uh, or, you know, someone who will only be training a year who gets randomized into these two different groups that might bias that covariate. And it can really have an outsized impact on the, the outcomes. So that's just called sampling variance. You know, um, when you sample from a population. And the variance that you get in those random group assignments from that sample, it can mean that if you reran the study, you would get some degree of difference. So 
our initial um, decision of how we were going to an, uh, analyze this was to do group by group comparisons. And what we decided post hoc based upon the fact that, hey, we, we ran out of money. And first off, one thing I do need to say is big thanks to Legion Athletics. You know, they, they funded the study. And then we also used um, some of the research grant money that I was given by Renaissance Periodization to, to fill out the rest of that, paying Steve as, as being a dietitian, a large part of that. Uh, all of it just went right into the study, by the way, um, paying uh, basically the research assistants for their time. So anyway, couldn't have done it without them. And I uh, appreciate their patience for us taking, you know, five years almost and because of COVID and also only getting through with, you know, 55, 60% of the participants we expected. But we were, I think we were able to salvage the data in a way by which we did what's called a regression analysis. So most sports science and nutrition science, uh, I should say sports nutrition science, you're going to see group versus group comparisons. And that's great. And sometimes that's the most appropriate analysis to do. But when you can, and you can leverage the full strength of the sample size you have, um, if you can do what's called a continuous analysis, then you get a much stronger uh, statistical power. So because we saw a lot of variance in how much body weight people gained, right? Um, so in the maintenance group, not everyone was perfectly at maintenance. In mm -hmm. the small surplus group, like we said, the mean change was the same as the large surplus group, which means there are people in the small surplus group who are, in, who are gaining too quick relative to what we're trying to do, and the opposite in the, in the large surplus group. We had said, oh, you know, what we've actually got here is a range of body weight changes over these eight weeks. And the actual, you know, independent and dependent variables we're looking at here is, you know, surplus and gain in muscle mass, right? And surplus, we're literally defining as, or operationally defining as the change in body mass over time. So that is something that occurred in a continuous manner across all participants. So why not take the whole 17 participants and simply do a regression analysis, which is basically just a correlation between looking at the change in body mass and how that related to the change in muscle thickness that we measured via ultrasound, 1RM in squat and bench press, and also the eight-site uh, ISAC skinfold changes, which is just high-quality, very precise uh, skinfold analysis. And that was actually quite good. And that is more statistical power than even we had planned if we'd gotten a full sample. You know, if we'd had 10 versus 10 versus 10, you know, we're looking at samples of 10. But now we've got a sample of 17 people and we can have a lot more confidence in the relationships that we looked at, um, which was really good because, you know, once we decided to do that, I kind of felt like, all right, good. We didn't we didn't waste, you know, five years and, and, and all this uh, time and, 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 uh, and money invested in this. And, and I, you know, was able to sleep at night. So. <laughs> so what I understand that you're saying is that by utilizing this um this approach you made this this well you um you feel that you have now more confidence in the results that you found at least part of them you know so an interesting thing if you look at the group versus group comparisons you'll actually see that um for example bench press 1rm was mm -hmm. better in the moderate surplus group Mm -hmm. But I think that's an example of sampling variance, because mm -hmm. once you took the whole sample and you regressed body mass and you looked at differences in strength, there wasn't a relationship between strength gain and the total amount of lean mass gained for each participant. So when that goes away, it tells you, OK, you just happened to get someone who, for whatever reason, 
that's not related to the the variable you're manipulating, which is the surplus size of the weight gained, got stronger and they were in that group. Or maybe you got two people. And two people doesn't sound like a lot, but when you only have five people in a group, that's 40% of them, right? So that's enough when you're doing these small group-based comparisons uh, to push the inference towards going, oh, that was a better group. Um, mm -hmm. Small caveat for those interested in stats, which is, I'm sure, like zero people listening. But I <laughs> Um, we use what's called a Bayesian analysis. So if people are used to looking at studies, they're typically going to hear things like statistically significant. Um, and that's not something you're going to see in the Bayes analysis. What they typically have is a Bayes factor, uh, what is sometimes called a BF10. Um, mm -hmm. And that just basically is uh, the likelihood of one hypothesis being greater than the other. So if you see a BF factor of, say, two, favoring the moderate surplus group. That means, you know what, it's twice as likely that what they did was beneficial than the other group. Um, so it's a little more of an intuitive understanding because if you ask most people, what does actually P less than 0.05 mean? They're like, it's, I don't know, you know, <laughs> like, but, and it, and even when you explain it, it's not intuitive. It, that's actually the, 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 the chance that the uh, observed difference between groups was by chance, you know, so it's the probability, that's what the P stands for, of any difference in the means being, you know, due to chance. And we go, well, if it's only a 5% chance or less, then we're going to go ahead and say that is a true difference. So null hypothesis testing is relatively obscure anyway, and it does have problems. Um, it's hard to interpret. And then also it doesn't necessarily really give you an intuitive sense of, all right, what's the likelihood and probabilities here? So we use Bayes factors, uh, Bayesian analysis, which we think is um, probably better for these types of sample sizes as well, because um, it can give you just a more kind of continuous assessment rather than the kind of cutoff, like, oh, 0.07, well, nothing, 0.05, oh my God, you know, which mm -hmm. is kind of, you know, black and white thinking, which we're trying to get away from more and more when we have probabilistic understandings of, of how data kind of shakes out. Yeah, that makes sense. So my understanding is that what you wanted to determine was if skinfold thicknesses, the uh, 1RM performance in squat and bench, and then the muscle thicknesses measured by ultrasound in the biceps and the quads were influenced by being at maintenance in a smaller surplus or in a bigger surplus. And so in the conclusion section, I was reading about the fact that you your conclusion, um, yeah, was that faster rates of body mass gain and so being in a larger surplus seem to increase the gain in skinfold thicknesses. But in this particular study, it didn't seem to also improve 1RM and muscle thicknesses to the same degree or to the same extent. Is that right? Yeah, high level, 100%. Uh, just some minor things as we got biceps, triceps, and quadricep muscle thicknesses. Mm -hmm. So um, we were we were looking at a couple different uh, upper body sides. But yeah, I mean the the thing we which which I think is important actually because we did find some weak evidence in favor of higher rates of weight or there being a positive relationship I should say with weight gain mm -hmm. uh, and bicep thickness increases. But the strength of that evidence, when we look at those base factors and just basically a regression, it gives you um, like an R score. People are familiar with it. It's a very simple Pearson's correlation. You get an R score 
Um, we had a, a strong, we had strong evidence if we were to qualitatively describe the strength of the quantitative numbers that we got from our Bayesian regression mm-hmm. between increases in skin fold and, and body weight. So, mm-hmm. you know, if we were to plot a linear line, a lot of those dots would be relatively close to it. It does look like a linear relationship. And, you know, as you slide up, you know, you're seeing an increase in eight site skin fold thicknesses as you're seeing an increase in body weight. And then if you shift over to one RM strength in squat or, or, or bench, if you were to plot it, scatter plot all, all over the place, no clear line, right? Same thing for triceps muscle thickness, same thing for quadriceps muscle thickness. But for biceps, there's a little bit of a cloud or you can kind of see it's semi, semi, you know, linear. And we had what we what would be qualitatively described as weak evidence of a positive relationship between gains in uh, uh, body mass and increases in biceps muscle thickness only, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, the strongest evidence we had, if we were going to, you know, hang our hat on something and also as just kind of go back to my prior point, if we were to have used null hypothesis significant testing, we, we didn't. So I don't know this to be the case. But I suspect the only significant uh, relationship we would have found would have been between body fat and 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 mass gains. So mm-hmm. I think that's to give someone an idea of the kind of strength of relationships we're talking about here. So absolutely, yeah. The um, regardless of whether someone was closer to weight maintenance or gaining a little more quickly, that didn't seem to impact their strength, triceps or quadriceps muscle thickness. But it did seem to have a pretty uh, clear relationship. Uh, with the total increase in skin fold over the eight weeks that they were training. So the way I'm looking at these results, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is is the following. So usually skin fold thicknesses are used as a proxy for body fat gain, Mm -hmm. whereas we use muscle thicknesses as a proxy for increases in muscle size. And also uh, we, in this case, I'm assuming that one RAM performance was used because normally if you are increasing your muscle size then you are also your performance is also in many cases likely to increase over time so when you're finding that if you gain body mass at a faster rate and your skin fold thicknesses are also going up but that's really the only large change that you can see then my understanding is that then a larger surplus doesn't really result in more muscle mass gain but only in a faster rate of body fat gain whereas whether you are in a smaller surplus or in a larger surplus the rate of muscle gain seems to be the same that's how i'm interpreting these results would that be right or do you have any um corrections to make or any further thoughts uh, you're on point. And I think the the further thoughts I have is that we are absolutely constrained to the, uh, the structure and the limitations of the study. So this was an eight-week study. It's possible that with a longer time period, we would have been able to see clearer differences. The only downside to that is I don't think the skin fold change would have dropped off, right? So you would have seen potentially, oh, yeah, larger surpluses do increase strength and muscle mass more. But, you know, after 16 weeks, now you've got a fair amount of body fat that came with it. And that may be worth it for someone who is, say, like an American football, you know, lineman who they just want to get bigger and stronger, you know, because if they Mm -hmm. weigh more, it's harder for you to push them over. Right. Um, Sumo wrestler, you know, like uh, I think we don't want to take too much of a a bodybuilding lens on this. There's there's a time and a place for different goals. Right. Um, Equipped powerlifter. 
you know, there's a lot of discussion around the fact that when you're wearing, say, single ply or multiply equipment, uh, that the body dimensions and geometry and mass you have, to some degree, irrespective of whether it's contractile tissue or adipose tissue, uh, is allows to put a little more stretch on the shirt and the squat suit. And being bigger can sometimes just help you being stronger. So, um, and you know, the uh, the relationship between strength and hypertrophy is also one that is uh, complex. Uh, and absolutely, you know, contractile tissue over a long enough period and people who are well experienced, you should see some relationship there. But perhaps over eight weeks, you wouldn't expect, even if there had been more muscle gain, uh, to really see the, the difference uh, kind of uh, manifest in the one arm testing. So those are all caveats. Another caveat is that we were training them three times a week. And that mm -hmm. probably was similar to the amount of training that some of these participants were doing maybe even more than a couple if they were training hard two times a week uh, recently. But it was absolutely probably a decrease in total training uh, frequency and volume for a fair number of the participants who joined the study. Um, and, you know, we tried to make up for that by making it a pretty hard program. Uh, they were doing squat and bench press on all three days of the week that they came in. Mm -hmm. And they were doing three accessory movements. Uh, we followed basically a linear progression that wasn't like super, super powerlifting style. Like the reps didn't get that low. They got down to like four reps from 10. Um, mm. and the, and the RPEs rose, uh, the, the strength in the bench press were basically ran through a percentage based system with a correction based upon RPE. So okay. for example, something might be like, Hey, three by eight at 75%. And by the way, that should be a, you know, a zero to two RIR or a two to four RIR. So they'd mm -hmm. run the first set based on the percentage and also based upon what did they do last week. And so it's this individualized adjustment. Oh, and if that first uh, set at that percentage or based upon last week's was too low or too high of an RIR, then we just adjust the load to get you back in that range. So the compound lifts were maintained in a, uh, you know, a moderate but still submaximal difficulty and with a linear increase in load and a, a linear decrease in reps. It's kind of like a, you know, a typical strength program. But then they would have a, uh, a back exercise and a shoulder exercise and a biceps exercise every day, three sets to failure. And um, I know my, my students and my colleagues, um, they're pushing, pushing them hard. So the, uh, the, the, the hard work that they were doing was, 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 was good, but it's three times a week. Mm -hmm. Now, with that said, I suspect that there's not many people who are training in this study and training their biceps four times a week, you know, or training squats four times a week or bench four times a week. Mm -hmm. So I think that our targeted analysis, looking at, you know, triceps with benching all the time, quads with squatting all the time, and biceps with doing biceps and back work every single day, hopefully skirts this limitation. Um, mm -hmm. But if we were to do something like, say, DEXA or just overall uh, lean mass, I think it might be like, ah, you know, they're not getting the same total body volume. And that could be something that impacted the, uh, the skin folds. That's something I've thought about. The reason why is that essentially when you've got a surplus, it's got to go somewhere. You know, yeah. your, your body's got to pay for that, right? So if you have a lot of, of muscles that are acting as a calorie sink because they're generating muscle protein synthesis, they've gotten that sig signal to grow, then more of that surplus can be possibly dictated uh, or, or directed, I mean, towards muscle mass gains. Uh, but if there are muscle groups that are just not getting trained, so for example, calves and hamstrings in this study didn't get a lot of love, you know, um, if 
if if those if those muscle groups were were seeing slight atrophy or were just kind of holding on and not doing anything, that's potentially a quote unquote missed opportunity for someone who's trying to gain as much muscle mass as possible, which means that those calories are going to go somewhere else and that's going to be adipose tissue, right? Mm-hmm. So so yeah, um, I think it's there's the limitation is you know we had reasonably well trained people and also some quite well trained people eight weeks only training three days a week on what probably most people would describe a low to moderate volume program. Um, and I would say the only, the only muscle group, which really got a, um, a moderate, a moderate to moderate high volume through both direct and indirect work was the biceps Mm -hmm. every day. They're doing three sets on biceps and either three sets of lat pull downs or three sets of rows. So yeah, so it's, 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 um, at least it falls within like the meta analytic ranges of what is quote unquote optimal volume. You know, if we go to Schoenfeld. 2017, or if we go to Basbal, uh, 2022, that have looked at different number of sets per week per muscle group, and they count it the same way, direct and indirect work, 10 plus or 12 to 20 sets, uh, we fall in both of those ranges for the biceps, but we didn't meet it for a lot of the other muscle groups. And maybe mm-hmm. that's why the biceps were the only muscle group which seems to have some relationship with weight gain. And they're always trying to failure too. So it was a moderate volume, high intensity program. Um, relatively high frequency and, you know, in trained lifters, sometimes they have to push a little bit more volume or intensity or both to really see uh, meaningful changes in a, in a muscle mat or a muscle group uh, over a short period of time, like eight weeks. So I think this doesn't put the nail in the coffin by any means of don't ever bulk, um, <laughs> but it absolutely says, look, if you're going to do it, you've got to make sure you're growing. Um, so if someone is following a, like it kind of comes back to something I've said many, many times before is that nutrition is permissive to gains mm-hmm. and your, your training program is what is going to create that initial stimulus. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, create a good stimulus, but you don't support it, you're not going to get great gains. And if you create an inadequate stimulus and you over support it, then you're, you're going to gain primarily body fat. So I think maybe, maybe we're seeing a mixture of that where there wasn't a sufficient stimulus to support uh, a large surplus or even a, a moderate surplus in this study for the quadriceps and triceps. Um, but there was a sufficient stimulus to benefit from a surplus, uh, for the biceps. And that's why there was, you know, a relationship there. Um, could it have been better? You know, maybe you, you wouldn't want to gain too quickly. You, you have to decide for your own purposes, whether clear increases in skin folds is worth not so clear, small increases in biceps. That makes sense. Thank you for explaining those uh, limitations. And actually, it's interesting that you brought up the fact that nutrition is permissive, but training is the stimulus for muscle growth. Because I was thinking about the fact that in my coaching practice and also in my personal approach to gaining phases, I tend to I've been um toying with the idea of scaling the surplus to uh, the uh the stimulus provided by the training so for example if i have a client who wants wants to go into a gaining phase but for them it's realistic to train three days per week only then my approach is to skew their calories towards a surplus but keep it moderate so probably in the range of that five percent that you've mentioned or 
you know, as you said, it's really hard to track that. But within, you know, five and 10%, whereas if somebody is telling me, well, I want to go into a gaming phase and I have the time to train four or five times per week, then uh, I normally tend to scale the um, the surplus so that it's a, a slightly bigger surplus than if somebody were, were training less often. How would you think about that? I think that's a very reasonable approach. And I think it is, it's funny, you know, so evidence-based practice, I think sometimes people go like, right, I, I can't make a decision unless I've got like, you know, Helms at all or Girth at all or whatever. Um, but I think really evidence-based practice, because only one of the three pillars of what it is, is actually being science-based, like actually being informed by the research. Mm-hmm. And the other two pieces are individual differences slash personal preferences and the other one's experience. Um, and ultimately I think what you do with the science, and I got to give a shout out to my mentor, Dr. Zerdos on this is understand that science is conceptual rather than specific. So Mm -hmm. because of all the limitations I stated, as much as this is is a translational piece of research that we conducted, um, ultimately you're not going to go, right, well, I got to train three days per week and I can't train my hamstring calves. Like, of course not. Right. So you have to go, okay, how do I take the concept that I learned from this study and how do I integrate it into my training? Um, and that's exactly what you're doing there. You're saying, you know what? The biceps got the most stimulated. You know, one of the inferences we can make from this, which is very reasonable based upon the limited data we have, which also is supported by the general principles of how we understand physiology works, and also my experience, you know, and also the goals of my clients. You know, they're they're interested in putting on muscle mass, but they don't want to gain a disproportionate amount of body fat. All that together, I think, leads to that very reasonable practice. And that is what I would say is a perfect example of evidence-based practice. Oh, thank you for that. I was interested in uh, hearing your opinion. And another thought I had was you, um, in the study, you decided to use a percentage of energy maintenance. Whereas what I normally do is I set the surplus i use as a target a certain rate of ma- of a body weight gain per month so for example i will say i'm trying to achieve a surplus that will enable this person to gain between um 0.75 and 1.5% of their body mass in a month so i was curious to know what made you decide to go with a percentage of caloric intake instead of aiming for uh, body weight gain over a certain period of time. That was basically just propaganda because ultimately <laughs> when we, like when we, uh, when, what we actually did and what the dietitian did to, to establish that was based on their body mass changes. So all of the adjustments that were made by Steve um, were based upon, you know, average changes in body mass over time. So functionally mm. what we were doing is the exact same thing as you. Okay. We just extrapolated, we estimated uh, using published equations, what would we expect from these surpluses? So it's kind of a mixture of both. Um, and we wanted to cover both of those grounds because some people do think of, uh, and it's very common, just as common as, you know, like, like if you read my books, like I, I make a recommendation basically in line with what you said, you know, try to gain X amount of weight and then you mm-hmm. just, whatever surplus is needed to get there because we care about the outcome. Exactly. So I think that's a very pragmatic approach, but there is just as many people who think of, Small surplus is 10%, moderate surplus is 20%, large surplus is 30%. So I wanted it to be something that um, was understood by everyone who read it 
and uh, was and came from different kind of uh, paradigms of thinking and schools of thought. But even the people who, who I know who use the 10, 20, or 30 percent, the adjustments, the quote unquote auto regulation, if you will, of their um, their their gaining phase is based upon what they see in the mirror and what they see on the scale. So I thought what we chose to do um, of setting the initial one based upon an increase over maintenance calories and then adjusting it based on body weight probably captured the largest number of people and would be understood um, by uh, not only the, the peer reviewers. Hopefully, we'll see one big caveat is this has not gone through peer review. Um, it's a preprint, um, but also by all the readers who are intending to hopefully uh, learn from it. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks for clarifying. And actually, something else that came to my mind as we're talking about this is um, in terms of uh, the size of the surplus, another um, speculation, form of speculation that, or another thought I'm toying with is the relationship between the lifter's experience and the and, and then the size of the surplus. So for example, what I'm thinking is if somebody is more of a beginner, they have the potential to gain muscle at a faster rate. So it would make sense to me to um, increase the size of their surplus versus even, so let's take somebody who trains three times per week, for example, uh, and they're a beginner, then I, maybe I would skew that surplus towards a 7% um, over calorie, over 7% uh, extra calories over maintenance. Whereas if somebody was advanced, then I would skew it towards 5% because they're going to gain uh, body, uh, but they're going to gain muscle at a slower rate. So we want to, again, mitigate the gain in uh, body fat. So um, have you found any relationship between potentially uh, on an individual basis between the participants training experience and uh, change in skin folds or muscle thicknesses or both? Great question. And if I was to give advice to anyone who wants to do further work in this area, because we do need it, is one, uh, try to do it when there's not a global pandemic, first piece of advice. Um, second piece of advice is, uh, well, that first piece of advice will allow you to get a larger sample than we had. And then you can start to have a little more confidence looking at these other relationships and covariates, just like you suggested. Um, with a larger sample, you could confidently look at things like uh, self-reported uh, experience, like how many years you've been training. Um, mm -hmm. You could also just look at, say, fat-free mass index. So that's 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 another kind of objective, more objective way of doing things. You know, body mass index is just you know height divided by body weight, right? And uh, you can do the same thing with 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 fat free mass, uh, and then you can kind of go all right on like if you have a large enough sample, like some people are born with a like they walk around and they're at 23 fat free mass index and like they don't even lift weights right. Um, other people that's their their cap when they're trained. So it's mm -hmm. it, all these things are imperfect, but you could even run a regression and you could look at the relationship when you plug in years of experience, fat free mass index, as well as uh, relative strength. And if that starts to explain a lot of the variance in, you know, body mass gains as they relate to uh, changes in, in muscle thickness, now we have some clearer support for that. Um, and I think that would be pretty cool. I don't, I don't think we have the power to do it in ours. Um, I mean, we have, the, we have the ability. I don't mean the power in a colloquial sense. I mean, the actual <laughs> statistical power, you know. I wouldn't be confident in whatever we found, is, let's put it that way, because um, mm -hmm. we have, only have 17 people. But 
I think it would be very cool in future analyses for people to do exactly what you're describing. I think that's a very uh, astute way of looking at the data. Uh, yeah, that's very interesting. As you can tell, I, t I think a lot about how to gain muscle and uh, what, what we could do in a, in a scientific setting to understand that a lot more. I find it interesting how we know quite a lot about um, fat loss, which makes sense because of the obesity epidemic, but so very little, at least there is so very little research in um, muscle gain. There is so little we understand about hypertrophy and how muscle actually works. You're not wrong. There's a, a lot. I mean, sports science is, um, I know it seems like a lot comes out. A lot of people talk about it. We have a very robust kind of quote unquote evidence-based community, but in many ways it's very much in its infancy. You know, we've really only had the field of strength and conditioning for a handful of decades, you know? Um, so it is behind in many ways. Um, and if you look at kind of how we operate, uh, versus some more advanced medical fields and the way people are studying, like you said, uh, obesity, et cetera. Um, we've got a lot of catching up to do. We're doing our best. And hey, if you ever want to waste many, many years of your life to become really knowledgeable in a very specific field while having other life skills atrophy, I would encourage you to definitely go into graduate school, Nikias, because uh, with a mind like yours, I'm sure you'd do well. Uh, thank you so much. I actually have considered that. Um, I have a degree already. And now with my full-time coaching business, there's a, yeah, the, I, I have thought about it, but I don't know. I think I have the mind, but I don't have the patience and I don't have the, uh, the um, love for that level of, of precision. I am not that mm. precise and I suck at statistics as well, which I think would be a problem. Hey, so did I. Yeah, like it's it's definitely an opportunity to also work on, uh, like I, I I'm a big picture thinker. People probably think of me as a very analytical thinker because I'm a researcher, but mm -hmm. I think there is a certain bar you need to cross of, of like analyticalness, uh, which is definitely not a word. Um, but and I've I've reached it, and it's good because then you can do things like look at study designs and uh, you know learn a basic level of of statistical analysis and go oh did they even does that make sense for what they did? Um, mm -hmm. But there are people who are far more analytically minded than I am and far better at that. I'm sufficiently good, but because I'm a big picture thinker, I'm able to tie concepts together. And it's probably why I'm a good science communicator. Mm -hmm. um, and I can think about, like I, I have an easier time writing a discussion. A lot of my colleagues have a much easier time writing the results. You know, they can think about playing with the data, but to me, I, I, for me to understand the data, I have to think about how it fits into the overall picture of my understanding of how things operate. And that's what a discussion is, right? So, um, so you know, you'll find different strengths lead you to uh, different practices when you get into the, that environment. But if you ever want to take a pay cut, uh, you know, take a sleep cut and, you know, like I said, you know, probably not be able to handle as many clients as you currently can to answer a question that no one will care about in four years, we've got a spot for you. I'm saying. It's, it's, Thank it's you. You're already life. selling it to me. I, I got to tell yeah, you. Man. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, I'm halfway. I'm already writing my application <laughs> over here. Nearly out the door. About to get on a get on a plane to New Zealand. That's right. <laughs> oh well, that would be awesome, actually. But thank you so much for covering that. Actually, I got. I wanted to talk to you about a different topic, uh, as I was alluding to before we started recording. But I got so excited about this one that now I don't want to do a disservice to 
the other one by introducing it when we have so little time. However, what you brought up, like we were talking about science communication, actually mm. led to another question that I think will be interesting. And it circles back to the beginning when I was saying there is so much research that's been published. I also feel like that thanks to social media, there might be maybe even the same amount of research being published, but we just hear about it more because a lot mm -hmm. of people are talking about it. As soon as a study comes out or a preprint comes out, you find a lot of posts discussing it by different people, which I think is both a great change because there's more information being shared, but it also leads to potentially some people will jump to conclusions uh, or some people will misunderstand the findings. Some people will just be purely confused because they'll see these uh, very scientific captions on Instagram of all places where we all go to look at cat pictures and memes and they'll think, what the freak does all of this mean? So my question to you would be in this changing social media world where we have access to all of this information, if somebody isn't a researcher and doesn't understand science to the degree which you do, how would you, what would you suggest to look out for in terms of how do we know who to trust? Yeah, that's such a good question, Nikias, and I wish there was a very clear and easy answer. Um, and it's something that I wrestle with on, a, if not daily basis, at least weekly, I think about this. Um, to, yeah, also I like the way you framed it. And I think there, I'm, I'm actually acutely aware of different parts of that framing. It is actually true that there's more research being published. That's something that I, I've learned in mass. You know, when we first started, we had an estimation of like how much research is coming out in the fields of sports nutrition and exercise science on a monthly basis. And that number has gone up. And then the number when we first assessed it was higher than it was not too uh, long before that. So the field is growing. That's a good thing from the perspective of you know, if we've got more people taking shots on goal, we're going to get more points, right? There's going to be more useful information. Um, it now allows for more meta-analyses to be published, even if we don't have great sample, you know, great sample sizes as I discussed earlier. Um, and so long as our methods are improving, uh, then it won't just be like, you know, saturating the, the airwaves with trash, um, which is <laughs> a potential risk. Uh, and I think our methods are improving. And uh, one of the ways which we can improve methods is what's called open science. And that is just the process of being more transparent and having more open data sharing uh, and having less things locked behind paywalls that people can't get access to. And uh, one of the cornerstones of that is doing preprints. So that's why we got a preprint of this study. And that's why you've been mentioning in what you just said, there's a lot of people discussing this stuff and that's before it's even come out. So for example, some like there's three big ones in addition to the, what we just released, you know, the fourth that are all preprints. So the meta-regressions that came out of FAU, led by uh, Zach Robinson, who's a PhD candidate under Mike Zerdos, on mm -hmm. training to failure. That's something that we'll probably discuss in the future, it sounds like. Yes. Which I'd love to be Definitely. back on. So um, also uh, Daniel Plotkin, who is at Auburn University. He's a PhD candidate. And uh, he had a study that was funded by uh, Brett Contreras, among other people, who compared squats versus hip thrusts, looking at glute hypertrophy and transfer to strength. Um, and then there was also the DLO study that came out of Dr. Brad Schoenfeld's lab over at Lehman, uh, led by a PhD candidate, Max Coleman. You know, so these are um, important studies. You know, we have questions that are not clearly answered yet. You know, what size of surplus is appropriate? Uh, which exercise is better for the glutes? How do deloads operate? 
And yeah. you, why, why did you laugh? That's a very important <laughs> question. <laughs> this is because we, we went from a very big picture question. What surplus is appropriate for gaining to which exercise is best for the glutes? This very specific muscle group. I, I just I was just laughing at that. No, I, 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 that, that was a subtle shot at, at, at Dr. Brett Contreras. Um, <laughs> I got to. I have to be a shit stirrer a little bit. You know, so, so anyway, the, these four studies are all... Regardless of how, whether they're big picture or, or specific, people in in our space are very interested in them, you know. Yeah. Um, and none of those have been peer reviewed yet. So I think this goes to show that there is a lot changing, and and for the most part, for the better. It is absolutely a good thing in the scientific community. But you're a hundred percent right that as social media grows and as more stuff is published and as things are getting talked about before they're even published, it can be overwhelming. And I think that's part of the reason why you're also seeing some, like, basically anti-intellectualism uh, or, or, you know, like, it, it's kind of like we see with, with COVID. There was people who were uh, very distrustful of the powers that be and your traditional medical advice. And some of that was from, you know, the ball being dropped as far as the communication there and having to move quickly uh, because it's an actual pandemic, not a theoretical virus. And science doesn't move quickly very well. Um, and, you know, we saw a lot of misinformation and there was actual dire consequences to that. Right. So that has also been echoed in a much, you know, lower risk and reward environment in, in, in our space. Uh, now you'll mm -hmm. see people, you know, confidently state like, you know, science is, is useless for bodybuilding. Right. Uh, not realizing that on a day to day basis, they're they're using some principles that came from science that was done 10 years ago. Um, and you'll get people who will literally state that the researchers themselves know less about the research than we can figure out us citizen scientists because we have the in the trenches experience and they'll, you know, characterize someone like me as, you know, a pencil neck lab coat wearer who doesn't even lift weights, um, which is going to make my next show tough. You know, I'm six weeks out and I don't even lift weights. I, what am I doing? Right. So, you know, like there, there's absolutely some some discourse that indicates that people are overwhelmed, understandably, uh, it's too much. They feel like it's too much a focus on the science. People are being too rigid in their thinking, and some people are. And um, that's why I always kind of remind people of those two other legs of evidence-based practice. The interaction mm -hmm. of social media makes it even more complex. You know, e even if you are a good science communicator, it is challenging to shoehorn uh, a, a a non-overwhelming description of a study that captures the nuance appropriately when you're capped on words and you get a 90 second reel to do it or when you've got to make it into uh, not too many slides of infographics um so you know like you mentioned bill campbell who was on who capped who you know beat my 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 number of, of views and, and engagement he does a great job it's a good example you know he's got little quizzes on his instagram he is He's turned his Instagram profile, which is absolutely designed to get you to keep looking at cats, into an educational page on, you know, nutrition and exercise science and, and physique, physique science, if you will. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something a lot of people in the space are trying to do and to varying degrees of success. And I think the to some degree, it's not a problem that we have this kind of incestuous evidence based community. So like. A lot of the people who follow my work have a degree, are considering graduate work, maybe did a master's, might be getting into a PhD. And we have a lot of people who are publishing research who are themselves coaches, competitors, 
athletes are just very, very serious about their own training, train others. Um, it's rare to find someone who's a pure scientist now in our field. And I think that's because of the way it's been promoted and popularized and seen as a viable path. The only real example I had when I was coming up uh, and starting my, my academic career, oh, geez, and like in 2009 and earlier, 2007, 2008, when I really got started, was Lane Norton, you know, and mm -hmm. there was a few others like Dr. Joe Klimczewski. So um, representation, is, it matters. That's true in a lot of facets of life. And, and for a guy like me who just wanted to be a bodybuilding scientist, I'm not sure I would have thought that was a thing unless I'd seen another quote unquote bodybuilding scientist. And, and there was an archetype for that. And now, you know, a whole generation of people came up on that. And now we're almost 20 years past that. Right. So we've had a couple yeah. of generations of academia to do that. Um, so getting back to my point, we've got this incestuous kind of insular discussion. We've got this evidence based crowd. And I think that's okay because who they communicate to is then kind of another step removed. And that's people who are almost pure trainers who are trying to stay up to date. And that's challenging for them, but they've got a whole lot of people to talk to. And so mm -hmm. long as we do a so long as we do a good job at like the core root of that, um, and we've got people who are willing to listen to podcasts and not just consume Instagram information, you know, like they might hear about they, they might have saw my 90 second green screen reel, which Here's what pisses me off, Nikias. Do you know how long it took me to do that 90-second reel? Two hours. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you know? I know that I know the, the, I definitely know the pain. Yeah. So this podcast, uh, you know, we, we've done a far better job covering the, the results of that study. We're an hour in. So it's already, you know, 100% more time efficient. Um, but from the, for, for me... But of course, it's not about me. It's about the people I'm trying to help. So yeah. all the people who, you know, watched that clean 90 second green screen reel that did pretty well, they don't know that I was sitting there like, all right, I got to shave two seconds off this and still cover the methods, you know? All right. I can't say the sites where the muscle thicknesses were. I just need to say muscle thicknesses. Actually, if I say muscle and skin thicknesses, then I can cover both, you know, like, like, yes, I understand I completely. Yeah, I'm fighting over milliseconds here just to try to, to to not leave anything out but say everything. And then, okay, then I got the caption, and then I can also link into the thing. But I know that with each step of that additional detail, I'm, I'm losing 20, 30% of the audience. So it is absolutely a challenge. It's easy to get wrong, uh, and you can't actually get everybody. Um, but the way I see it is, look, if that got 70,000 views, which is incredible, right? Like... I just need the majority of the people, uh, especially other content creators, to get it right and for them to go out and do the same thing so that it's not a game of telephone, but it's actually a, a tool of disseminating correct information. So I'm not the only one in the space, though. There's plenty of people who I saw jumped on. Like there was I'm not going to name names, but there was a uh, quote unquote evidence based person who 20 minutes after the meta regression on failure dropped, they had a video on it. And I'm like, there's absolutely zero way you read through the whole methods of that. Like it took me a week to digest it. And then I talked about it on a podcast and you made a, you know, like, you know, a video within 20 minutes that got posted on social media. And of course it was a hot take that was largely wrong. So I think, um, the competitive pressure to try to be the, you know, the first to, to like, let's talk about this versus let's get it right. Mm -hmm. I think it's misplaced in our community. Um, you know, people are going to want to hear from someone they trust and they connect with. 
So if you take a little longer to talk about something and it takes a week before it's on your podcast or what have you, but you get it right, I think that's far more important because we really do need to plant the seed for it to grow right and not be taken the wrong way. Um, another really important thing is Daniel Plotkin, Max Coleman, myself, and um, as well as Zach Robinson are the ones out, out there communicating things. And that is something that I try to explain to my colleagues a lot, like just having a Twitter profile and just sending a like putting a link to when your thing goes to press to a paywall, you know, thing that's just an abstract people to read. That's not that's not impact. That's not research impact. You're not doing your job. Um, we're not theoretical physicists. Right. Mm -hmm. It's sports science. So like this isn't something that like we don't want the stat to be true, which is true that the average paper that's published is read by like five other researchers, like fantastic, you know, in sports science, we want it to be read by the practitioners and the athletes, and we want it to be understood by them. And we want it to be understood accurately so they can actually implement it. We are by nature, even like, like, yeah, I mean, might, might say I'm an applied exercise physiologist first, you know, exercise physiologist, but all of it is, is applied on a relative scale. When you look at all the different fields of, mm -hmm. uh, of academic inquiry, so if you're if you're in nutrition, if you're in exercise and you're in the research space, you are applied. You are translational no matter how whether you're working with mice, whether you're working with with cell cultures or whether you're like me, who's basically a glorified personal trainer, <laughs> that then then that that's what you're doing because it is meant to impact people. And if that is the case, we need to communicate to people. So when you do research, you need to have someone on your team who you trust or who can help you or you yourself needs to do a little bit, not much more than you currently do, but just more than a throwaway PubMed link on, on, your, on your Twitter to actually get out there. Because if you don't do it, someone else will, and they're probably going to get it wrong. So I think being the actual person who did the research and then went out to communicate it to people is a very, very important piece of this puzzle. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's, like, I imagine if these four preprints, if none of the people I just described were talking about them, there would absolutely be some things lost in translation. And I think that can do, you know, echoing harm, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what I think, what I extrapolate from what you're saying, or rather what I understand is that, so from your perspective, the perspective of the science communicator, actually um, contributing the studies. So, you know, conducting the studies and then communicating them is important. And then for the person on the receiving end of that to be able to trust the information provided, you're saying try to find the communicators who are also actually doing the studies so that their explanation is, well, the closest to what actually went on in the study because they kind of conducted it. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Exactly. So I would say, you know, if, if you're someone out there just trying to get the information, when you can hear a description of what occurred from the person who did it, that's mm -hmm. fantastic. And it's not that you blindly listen to what I said about our study, but I think you want to have that perspective. So you want to mm -hmm. go, okay, this is what they think they did and what they saw and what they reported and their view on it, which is the closest to the actual, you know, lived experience of being, uh, you know, you know, running a study. Yes. But, you know, Lived experience is lived experience, right? I mean, people, everyone justifies what they do in their own head and they think they're the hero of their own story and I'm a victim of that too. So it is absolutely good to then step out and hear other people's takes on it as well. Um, you know, the thing about blind spots is we're blind to them. So I, it's not like I'm gonna be like, don't listen to Mike Isretel talk about my study because he didn't do it. 
it's like, well, maybe you should listen to Mike Israel tell about my study because he didn't do it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it, it, you can be missing out if you don't get both. Yeah, I agree. And then what I think you also implied, or at least what I thought you were saying was don't just consume the Instagram post, but also look at long form content like this podcast or the mass research review. So if you don't have the tools to understand the actual study when you read it look out for long-form content discussing it rather than relying on just the 90 second reel or the 2000 character instagram caption is that a correct interpretation of part of what you said absolutely and this is something that might sound a little harsh but for people who don't have the time or the level of interest to listen to an hour-long podcast or read a two or three thousand word article um, to fully understand something that's fine but that's a mismatched perspective with and i want to benefit from it and fully understand it and that's what i see not a lot but enough like sometimes we'll, some, someone will ask me a question on instagram about like hey i'm six i'm six foot i'm 90 kilograms i've had these are my training experience for three years uh and i haven't been able to make gains in my right bicep and my left is growing what do you think about mav in this and i'm like Bruh, we're on the gram. Like, how, what, what can I tell you? I can tell you, like, if, if you save up 60 bucks and buy my book, it's like the, and it's not going to sound good because I'm just like, you know, like, I need you to, there, there's nothing I can do for you. Like, you, we, Instagram is not an educational platform, no matter how good, you know, Bill Campbell is as turning his page into one. It's not designed for that. It's actually designed to keep you on there. Anytime I say anything in a caption, or in a reel that even smells like leave Instagram, I go from, you know, a thousand likes to a hundred. Like it, it just guts my engagement. So that's just an example of, of what these platforms really are. And we need to be aware of that. You know, like mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the tail is wagging the dog, you know? And uh, so if, if you are someone who wants to have a deeper understanding of the nuance rather than a surface level, which you don't need to, right like you can become if you have the genetics and, and the consistency a, a champion athlete without doing this you know you have a coach who, who does the hard work for you or maybe you're just a basic level student of the sport and you understand the key hits and you focus on the big rocks that we've known in the trenches for years fantastic however for someone like me who found that putting in that level of effort got me to not exactly where I wanted to go and I wanted to see if I could maximize my potential, I decided, well, I'm actually going to turn over that stone of me learning everything I can about it, which of course then led to an academic career. You don't have to do that. I don't recommend <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> everything I said earlier is obviously facetious and a lie, Nickius. <gasps> don't, don't do your postgraduate work unless you really just want to nerd out for the rest of your life. But anyway, if you do want to get 100% out of the data that we have on this, then you're going to have to put forth an effort that matches that. And that requires you to probably swipe up on Instagram so it closes and actually listen to a podcast, read a paper, or read a research review. Um, and, you know, there's a process there. You know, like, for example, if you subscribe to Mass, we have an interpreting research document. We have research briefs. We have audio summaries. So people can can understand it. Uh, you don't have to read the criticisms and statistical musings section. You can read the key points and you can read the interpretation. Good to go. 
Um, you don't have to read the, 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 you can listen to this podcast instead of reading the actual full text preprint of, 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 the, uh, of the paper. And I, I don't think you're missing out on much unless you're really interested in how, you know, what the actual strength of the Bayesian regression was uh, besides me just saying, you know, clear or unclear or small or, or moderate or large, uh, you know, uh, evidence. So I, I think um, having that understanding, there's like an opt-in for each person and that that can change over time as you learn is something that I think a lot of people don't get. And that's part of the overwhelm. Yeah, I agree with that. And Eric, I am really thankful for how generous you've been with your time. I'm aware that we're a little bit over. So I am going to end this obviously part one of our conversation here. But my three biggest takeaway points have been from this conversation that, at least from the study that you conducted, it seems like larger surpluses are not really more beneficial than smaller surpluses to mitigate body fat gain and maximize muscle gain. And then the uh, second takeaway point is that training is really likely the most important variable between training and nutrition if you want to optimize muscle gain in a gaining phase or in any phase really. Um, and finally, Stop being a lazy bum scrolling Instagram and go get some long form content if you really want to learn the nuances that science is trying to communicate. Do you think that this is a good summary of what we talked about? Absolutely. Listen to this podcast and just keep listening to Nikias' podcasts and you will be good in all facets of life is the big take home, I would say. But no, no, no. So in all seriousness, you nailed it. Thank you so much. So before we go, uh, is there anything that you would like to direct people to? I will obviously have the link to the preprint, which is open access to everyone in the show notes. But if there's anything else, let me know and I'll have the link. Yeah, absolutely. If people really want to try to stay up to date with the research and get a uh, an understanding of how someone like myself or Dr. Eric Trexler, Mike Zerdos, or PhD candidate Lauren Conlon, how we interpret it, how we come to our conclusions and frame it, um, I would highly encourage them to consider Mass Research Review. Uh, MassResearchReview.com is where you would go, and you can see us actually go through on a monthly basis uh, this information. And like I said, we got audio summaries, we got briefs, we got videos, we got full, full, full articles. That's probably the spot that I would recommend the most. And then just to stay up with the stuff I'm involved with, you'll probably see me post a picture or a reel related to this exact podcast episode on my Instagram at Helms3DMJ. Excellent. So I'll link people to the mass research review and to your Instagram account. And Eric, again, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on again. And dear listeners, thank you for your time, for tuning in today and until next time. Lastly, if you want to support the podcast, and help me reach more people, please leave a five-star rating or review on any podcast platform that you're using. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll speak to you soon.